Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A new study just out um, this week talking about COVID patients and their interaction with the healthcare system. Now, this is not, we're not talking about COVID patients that are sick with COVID now. We're talking about people who had COVID in the past, tested positive for COVID, um, call it long COVID maybe, um, but how they end up interacting with the healthcare system quite frequently, more so than people who didn't get COVID, I think. But let's find out. We are going to chat with um, one of the study's authors, who's also an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Research Institute in Toronto, Dr. Candice McNaughton, joining us now. Dr. McNaughton, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for your time. So let's just, uh, this study, that you, uh, did, I, did I sort of sum it up? Basically, it's to see how people who've had COVID previously find their healthcare experience going forward, and, you know, whether they're you know, more involved with healthcare or not. You nailed it. Um, that's exactly what we did. We were very curious to see what happened in the months after individuals had tested positive for COVID. So for this particular study, we started looking at healthcare use two months after their initial positive test. Okay, so we hear a lot about long COVID. I don't know anybody with long COVID. I've heard lots of people. T- Is that what you're talking about here? Does this have to be like a diagnosed long COVID patient or is just anybody who had COVID? We looked at anybody who had long, uh, I'm sorry, anybody who had um, been tested for COVID. Okay. Um, we, we didn't limit it to individuals who've been diagnosed with long COVID, in part because we're still trying to figure out what that is and what it means. Um, and we really wanted to sort of look more broadly and say, you know, re- regardless of whether or not they've been diagnosed, how are people doing after the infection? And, and you did look very broadly. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of uh, different patients you looked at, right? I mean, this was a big, big study. Yeah, uh, uh, just over half a million uh, adults. Yeah. And what did you find? I mean, ultimately, did you find that people who'd had COVID were more likely to end up back in a healthcare situation in the future? That's exactly what we found. Uh, and what was particularly interesting is that... Um, you know, on average, sort of most people had a slight increase in their healthcare use. And we looked at different types of healthcare use. We looked at uh, clinic visits. We looked at emergency department visits. We looked at home care encounters. We looked at hospital days, uh, you know, number of days that individuals were hospitalized. And we looked at long-term care days. And we found a few things that were very interesting. And we hope that will be useful for individuals in leadership and healthcare who make decisions about how resources are allocated. Um, What we found was that first there was a difference for men and women. Women in particular had more of an increase uh, sort of across the board, across the types of healthcare encounters uh, that compared to men, but both did have an increase. And the other thing we found was that most people experienced a small increase, but between one and 5% of individuals who tested positive those individuals really had a significant increase in their healthcare use. So while most individuals are doing okay and only need a little bit more healthcare use even months after their infection, a subset of individuals, one to five percent or so, really have significant increased healthcare needs. And that's what our concern is because 
this is occurring at a time when, um, you know... We don't have the capacity you know, to absorb it. Yeah. As you mentioned, I mean, as I was listening as you came on, and I'm in a merge position as well, I mean, we're all seeing it, and we're already, it feels like, sort of past the breaking point already, and, and to add something like this, uh, sort of the way that we described it in the paper is, for a family medicine physician pre-pandemic, if they had 20 visits per day scheduled, and about half of everybody in Canada has gotten COVID in the sort of recent past, um, that means that the family medicine doctor in the next year is going to have to come up with time and energy and resources to, for an additional 100 clinic visits. And when you multiply that by all of the different family medicine yeah. doctors that we have, I mean, it just adds up. Um, and the other big issue is, especially from my perspective as, a, as an eMERGE physician, is the, the increased number of days that these individuals will need in the hospital. And we already don't have very many hospital beds. I mean, we see very frequently individuals spending their entire hospitalizations in the hallways in our emergency departments. And for 1% of individuals who are infected, they're going to need an extra week almost in the hospital per year. Um, that's something that, uh, you know, Looking at it from my perspective as an eMERGE physician seems overwhelming to consider what the implications of our, you know, are we going to have enough capacity to take care of people who have appendicitis or cancer or strokes or heart attacks on top of the long COVID uh, wave that we're likely to be needing to take care of? You know, while I've got, we just spoke with Dr. Shazam Mathani, an ER doc in Edmonton, and she, you know, and, and, and some of the issues that they're facing, they've been facing for quite a while. You know, it's a shortage of staff, it's limited capacity, there's a bottleneck that seems to move throughout the system. Like, she tells us that, you know, she's got patients in, in the ER that she can't move on because there's no space in the unit, and that means that mm-hmm. people in ambulance can't get moved in. I mean, it's just sort of one thing, it's a chain reaction. What's it like where you are? At, at Sunnybrook, is, is it a similar experience, or is there something different in your part of the country? You know, it, it sounds like you're describing uh, exactly what we're experiencing. And, and when I talk to other eMERGE physicians uh, locally, and I have to be honest, even internationally, uh, you, know, you know, sort of across the country here, but also in other countries, um, there seems to be uh, a, a general consistent um, sense that we are experiencing sort of um, unprecedented needs for healthcare across the board. And it also feels like um, sort of broadly, and I'm not in politics, I'm not in any sort of policy making, but it, it feels like we maybe were not as prepared as we could have been mm-hmm. uh, for this stage um, because it sort of feels like we um, sort of knew this was coming. And this is part of the reason that we did this study is to really sort of brass tacks. What are we looking at yeah. in terms of uh, how many, how much more support do we need for primary care providers? How much more support do we need for home health? That was one in particular that stood out for women in particular, their needs for home health were drastically increased for one to 5% of individuals. And it was much higher for women than it was for men. Um, so it raises concerns about, are we going to be able to support um, people who need help um, with their help? And doctor, you know, I know in listening to you and to Dr. Metheny, I think for some people it's probably very concerning. The fact that we're heading into what we know is a busy time of year anyway when it comes to the healthcare system. And the alarm bells are going out. And um, family doc in Alberta, yeah, good luck. If you don't have one, it's pretty tough to find. The waits to get into one are really, really long. So, I mean, what can what a report like this, how can it be useful to, to Canadians? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it sends up some alarm bells, but what's your hope? On the one hand, we're really hopeful that uh, individuals who are in leadership positions can take this information and use it 
On the other hand, I also am hopeful that as individual Canadians, um, we can really sort of say, you know what, um, I'm going to do everything I can to keep myself and my family members as safe as possible. Yeah. And so this gets back to sort of, you know, the tried and true uh, things that we know to try to stay health- healthy, especially as you pointed out, going into the flu season, which sounds like it's going to be really rough. And already in the pediatric hospitals, we're out of capacity um, in, in, you know, with all the viruses circulating. Um, so things like wearing a mask indoors, I mean, you know, we don't have mandates and we don't really, we don't necessarily need them if we can all just yeah, wear exactly. masks appropriately. Um, getting our boosters, staying up to date on all of our vaccines, influenza vaccines, as well as our COVID vaccines. Indoor air quality is another thing, you know, it's sort of like universal precautions or, you know, the way that we have sewer systems. If we were able to clean the air through ventilation and filtration to a better degree than we do currently, we really could make a huge dent on so many different uh, conditions that are communicable. And it would be to all of our benefit. I mean, you know, indoor air filtration would be beneficial in uh, wildfire seasons. You know, anytime there's uh, an increase in pollution, you know, all of those things are things that we can have an impact on um, on an individual level. And then, you know, within our communities, we don't have to wait for the government to tell us uh, what we should and shouldn't be doing in, to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's it, we, we've been through it, right? We know how yeah. to try and mitigate it. So, uh, Dr. McNaughton, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.